thousands line up to pay their final respects to Alexei Navalny. I consider himself being like someone important to me and I, I, I needed a place to grieve. Have ceasefire negotiations for Gaza been derailed following an aid delivery that turned deadly on Thursday? I think a, a ceasefire and one of the critical aspects, hostage release connected to that is becoming more improbable because of these recent events. And with the U.S. presidential election just eight months away, how foreign actors may be working to influence the outcome. Join us as we explore the issues in the news. Hi, everyone. I'm Lori London in Washington. Thousands of people gathered outside a suburban Moscow church Friday, where a small funeral service was held for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny amid a large police presence. Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, who did not attend the funeral, posted an emotional tribute on social media recalling 26 years of total happiness and pledging to continue her husband's work in an address this week to EU leaders she again blamed Russian president Vladimir Putin for her husband's death on his orders Alexei was tortured for 3 years he was starved in a tiny stone cell cut off from the outside world and denied visits phone calls and then even letters and then they killed him. Even after that, they abused his body and abused his mother. Demonstrators gathered at embassies across Europe to memorialize Putin's fiercest critic who dreamed of a beautiful Russia. And turning to the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine as future U.S. support for Kyiv remains uncertain, Russian forces are capitalizing on their military advantage. I spoke with David Kramer, executive director of the George W. Bush Presidential Center, who recently co-authored an article on the myths that were used to start the war and new ones that are potentially helping the Kremlin and hurting Kyiv. Thanks so much for being with us. What inspired you and your co-author writing this article? There were a few factors. Uh, certainly the the milestone of the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion, and we're also right around the time of the first invasion, going back to 2014, of course, after uh, Viktor Yanukovych fled from Ukraine and ran to Russia, and the illegal annexation of Crimea in March of 2014. But just as much uh, on our mind is the stalemate that we see in Congress over the decision whether to provide additional assistance to Ukraine. This aid is desperately needed in Ukraine as we see the Ukrainians husbanding their ammunition and their, their weapons because they're not sure whether they'll get replenishments or not. And so that, frankly, was as much of a factor in writing this piece as anything. And obviously, there are a lot of myths going around in Congress that are being used to push back on supporting Ukraine. Sure. Well, one of them, of course, is the view that some espouse that Ukraine can't win. I imagine these are the same people who thought 
this war was going to be over in a matter of days and that Russia would take over Kiev, the capital, and remove Zelensky as president. Um, the Ukrainians, while not having achieved the success in the counteroffensive last year, have nevertheless made significant gains in the two years that we're discussing, including regaining more than 50% of the territory that Russia seized, essentially destroying half of Russia's conventional military capabilities, inflicting some 400,000 casualties on the Russian side, driving the Russian Black Sea fleet out of Sevastopol for all intents and purposes, restoring the export corridor through the Black Sea for Ukrainian agricultural goods. It's not surprising that the last 18 to 20 percent of Ukrainian territory that Russia occupies is the most difficult for Ukraine to gain. But Eric Gadelman and I firmly believe that Ukraine is capable of victory if we provide them with the means to do so. It's critically important to remember that the Ukrainians are not asking for our men and women to go fight this fight for them. They are asking, however, for our military assistance. There also has been talk about a ceasefire. This was another myth that we attacked. People saying that uh, we should push for the Ukrainians for a ceasefire. The Ukrainians don't support the idea of a ceasefire. Zelensky is a democratically elected president and he needs to pay attention to the views of his people. The Ukrainians, with good reason, don't believe any paper that Putin would sign. The Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 agreements are good examples of how worthless his signature is on anything. And so we reject the idea that now is the time to push for a ceasefire, denies Ukrainian agency, and it also would consign millions of Ukrainians to living under Russia's repressive control. And so we rejected that myth as well. What about the arguments by some members of Congress that the U.S. needs to focus on its own national security on the border first? So there's no question that we have challenges when it comes to border security, challenges on the immigration front, and those should be addressed. And we're not saying they shouldn't be. But the United States is the greatest country on earth. We are capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time, which is to say we can and should be able to address through Congress problems on the border, while at the same time providing assistance, desperately needed assistance, to a country that has been invaded by Russia, uh, where Russia has tried to forcibly change the borders, a country that aspires to join the Euro-Atlantic community, a country that is fighting for freedom, not just for itself, but for us too. Because if Putin were successful in Ukraine, he would conceivably move against other countries, whether Moldova or Georgia, which Russia already occupies 20% of territory there, or against the Baltic state. And there we run into Article 5 security guarantees with NATO. And if we don't do something to protect a NATO member state, then NATO is finished as, a, as the most successful military alliance in history. It also, people raise we should be focusing on China. Among Ukraine's strongest supporters are Taiwanese. They recognize that how we help and defend Ukraine against Russian threats will have a huge impact on Chinese leader Xi's thinking toward Taiwan. The rest of the whole world's watching what we will do. And so it's critically important that, yes, we focus on our domestic challenges, but as the greatest country in the world, the leader of democracy in the world, that we also recognize our overseas obligations too. And circling back to Russia's full-scale invasion 
heading into year three. Can you talk a little bit about what you, you noted the myths were that Russia used to start the war? It's interesting that there are some in the West, more frankly, than in Russia who accuse NATO enlargement of being responsible for this. And that simply isn't the case. It wasn't the case in 2014 since the previous Ukrainian president, Yanukovych, signed legislation in 2010 saying that Ukraine was no longer seeking NATO membership. And so this notion that NATO enlargement is responsible for this is simply not true. It's, it's frankly Kremlin propaganda. And uh, of course, the other parts of, of what comes out of the Kremlin is they don't view Ukraine as a separate state, as an independent country. Putin told President Bush back in 2008 he didn't view Ukraine as an independent state. His uh, absurd treatise in July of 2021, in which he said Ukraine and Russia are one people, is further indication that Putin and his circle don't view Ukraine as an independent state. The other myths, of course, were that Ukraine is run by neo-Nazis, despite the fact that Ukraine actually has a Jewish president that was democratically elected, that anti-Semitism in Ukraine was going down significantly based on an anti-defamation league survey that was done. Another myth, of course, is that Ukraine is a hopelessly corrupt country. And you hear this repeated in, in the West as well. And while Ukraine has certainly been plagued by corruption over the decades, Zelensky was elected on an anti-corruption platform with 73% of the vote. Now, he didn't do a great deal uh, until the re-invasion, the full-scale invasion. And his numbers were going down because of that. But Ukraine has showed, Ukrainians, I would argue, have little to no tolerance for corruption in light of the costs that they are paying for Russia's invasion. The other factor, of course, is the assistance to Ukraine. Most of it actually stays in the United States to help weapons manufacturers. But the assistance that does go to Ukraine is very carefully and closely monitored, arguably the most closely monitored assistance we provide anywhere in the world. And so the idea that we're sending good money after bad or that it's uh, going to corrupt purposes simply isn't the case. And it can't be said enough. Ukrainians are not asking us to send our men and women to fight this fight for them. But what they do need desperately is our military assistance. And there is one other myth that this is all on the United States. That simply isn't true. There is no replacement for U.S. military assistance. There is no substitute for what we can provide. But the Europeans are actually spending and providing more assistance when you factor in economic humanitarian and so on than we are. It's really important for folks to understand that this is not all on the United States. Our European allies are stepping up to the plate, and we're even seeing support from South Korea, Japan, Australia, Canada, other countries as well. So this is not just a U.S. effort. There, there is uh, plenty of burden sharing that's going around. David Kramer, Executive Director of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. We really appreciate your perspective and your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Laurie. And now to the Middle East. U.S. President Joe Biden has approved military airdrops of aid into Gaza. He noted that Thursday's deadly incident as Palestinians raced to get food from approaching aid trucks underscored the desperation. The loss of life is heartbreaking. People are so desperate that uh, uh, innocent people got caught in a terrible war, unable to feed their families, and you saw the response when they tried to get aid in. More than 112 Palestinians were killed, and some two 
280 others were injured in the bloodshed that surrounded the aid convoy. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says soldiers fired at the crowd. This witness said as soon as people heard aid would be delivered to the Nabolsi area near Gaza City, they headed over. Then, at five minutes to four, we were surprised by Israeli tanks that came out and opened fire on people randomly and directly. Immediately afterwards, all we found were martyrs, the injured and the wounded scattered on the ground in a chaotic and horrifying manner. This is my brother who went to bring food for his children. He was injured, trying to get a living. Israel blamed most of the deaths on crowds that swarmed around the trucks. Israeli Army spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hogari. As these vital humanitarian supplies were making their way towards Gazans in need, thousands of Gazans dispensed upon the trucks. Some began violently pushing and even trampling other Gazans to death, looting the humanitarian supplies. It was the largest single loss of civilian lives in weeks in Gaza and came as the overall death toll passed 30,000 since the start of the war, according to Palestinian health officials. After nearly five months of war following a Hamas terror attack on Israel on October 7th, UN rights chief Volker Turk on Thursday described the growing humanitarian catastrophe that has emerged. All people in Gaza are at imminent risk of famine. Almost all are drinking salty and contaminated water. Healthcare across the territory is barely functioning. Just imagine what this means for the wounded and for people suffering infectious disease outbreaks. And the tragic events in Gaza Thursday have now raised serious doubts about securing a ceasefire and hostage release agreement before the start of the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan. Joining us for perspective is Edward Jaranjan, former U.S. ambassador to Israel and currently senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative. We've been hearing for weeks about a possible ceasefire, the strongest push that we've seen in weeks. Is that still possible, given the circumstances on Thursday in Gaza City? I think a, a ceasefire and one of the critical aspects, hostage release connected to that is becoming more improbable because of these recent events. I think the real challenge in, in the ceasefire is not only the ceasefire, be it a temporary humanitarian ceasefire or a people who are calling for a permanent ceasefire, it's really the, the aspect of the hostage releases and the quality and quantity of the Palestinian prisoners who are to be released. I think that's probably the most sensitive issue that is being discussed in these various forums to come to a ceasefire of whatever nature. To me, that is what I'm looking at very carefully to determine whether or not this is going to be achieved. The, the real sticking point probably is the quantity and nature of the deal between Israeli and foreign hostages and Palestinian prisoners. What do we know about this deal? Very little, very little. I mean, there's there, there obviously and I could understand that having been involved in these things in the past, that they have to be negotiated with strict confidentiality because the positions of the parties are so, the gaps are wide. And in order to narrow those gaps, once the negotiating positions become public, then you're negotiating in public and that's an impossible task. And do you think it's partly because Hamas needs the hostages to continue to have leverage? Or is there a possibility that there are less hostages now because more have died than we may know? I think both. I think uh, there are probably less 
us hostages because of whatever kinetic events have taken place and hostages died for whatever causes. It's hard to determine that, but I think that there's been enough public information that hints at not all the hostages are alive. So that's one thing. But certainly the leverage, the hostages are being used by Hamas as strict leverage. There's no question about it to gain the highest uh, price they can in terms of is Palestinian political prisoners being released. Even before the incident in Gaza City Thursday, the U.S. was sounding, especially President Biden, very hopeful that an agreement could be reached before the Muslim holiday of Ramadan. But Israel and Hamas even then seemed to indicate that they were very far apart. Is that more of a reality? I think that's more of a reality. In my own experiences in the past, uh, you know, I was a State Department spokesman and also the uh, National Security Foreign Policy spokesman for President Reagan. And the uh, one thing I learned in terms of making public statements in situations like this, less is more, because you just don't know where these negotiations are going to lead. And even if the negotiations lead to some successful outcome, they may be overturned overnight because of something that happens, like the incidents you mentioned. It'd be wise for this administration and any administration to not predict something that is not really that assured. And speaking of... Um how much they say and don't say. President Biden has lately been more vocal in calling out displeasure with the level of Israel's operation. And he basically, he noted recently that he believed it will, if it continues, it will lose global support. What is your reaction to that? And has that support already been hurt? Look, what happened on October 7th was a horrific act, killing at least, you know, 1,200 Israelis. And then the Israeli uh, reaction to that, the war on Gaza uh, has caused a humanitarian disaster of uh, quite significant proportions, which are really tragic. And therefore, while Israel in the beginning had a lot of support because of the Hamas attacks on October 7th, it has begun in the last several, several weeks to lose international support because of the scope and the number of deaths and wounded amongst uh, Palestinians and women and children. And therefore, the Palestinian cause has been amplified to a regional and international level. So yes, Israel has lost international support. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government has stressed that even if there was a ceasefire, it would be temporary. That is not what world leaders are asking for, among other things that are in disagreement with the Netanyahu's plans for the day after. But how long could this, even if there were a ceasefire and it restarted, how long, given, as you said, the catastrophic humanitarian situation, how long can this go on? Well, it can go on as long as this uh, is Israeli government under Netanyahu uh, decides that it is going to go on, in which they claim they want to destroy Hamas completely. And the big question is, uh, what does that mean? What does destruction of Hamas mean in, in military terms on the ground in Gaza? Uh, how long will this war continue? to achieve that Israeli stated end. And there's a great deal of skepticism that you can uh, destroy Hamas completely, both its military wings and its political wings, because Hamas is both a military terrorist organization and also a political movement. So what does, what does that mean, destroying Hamas? And that's why I think there's a great deal of displeasure in various world capitals, including Washington, as to, you know, Mr. Prime Minister Netanyahu, what is your real end? game. And that's a question mark. Thank you so much for taking the time to provide your insights. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
Edward Jaranjan, former U.S. ambassador to Israel and now senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative. You're listening to Issues in the News. I'm Lori London. Turning now to U.S. politics. With the presidential election just eight months away, national security officials say Americans can be confident their votes are secure. But ahead of the November election, a top lawmaker is raising concern about ongoing efforts by foreign actors working to influence the results. Senator Mark Warner is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has been looking at cybersecurity and infrastructure structure threats. Anyone who doesn't think the Russian intel services have and will continue to interfere in our elections is, um, I wonder where they're getting their information to start with. Joining us now for more insight is VOA national security correspondent Jeff Selden. National security officials have continued to voice confidence repeatedly over our election security. What can you tell us about growing concerns of foreign actors literally trying to influence campaigns ahead of November? Well, that's an important point because there are two things that are going on. There's the physical election security, where you talk about the election systems, the voting systems, how voters go to the polls, their votes are counted, tabulated, and you find out who the winner is. And on that count, U.S. officials have been confident, telling lawmakers just last month that they believe the U.S. election will be as safe and as secure as it ever has been. But that's only on one side. And, and remember, that's aided by the fact that even though U.S. national U.S. elections for the presidential race are national, the elections themselves are local, so you have thousands of different systems that are used to do that really hard for a foreign adversary to infiltrate enough of them to make a tremendous difference. And again, U.S. officials say the safeguards are in place, that that should not be a problem. What national security and intelligence officials are worried about now, what they've been worried about is the influence operations. And those emerged first in 2016 during the presidential election. They were prevalent four years later, and we're hearing about them again now. On Tuesday, we heard from the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner. He sounded the alarm again. He told the cybersecurity conference in Washington he's worried that the U.S. is less prepared now than it was four years ago. And Warner, who's a Democrat, also said he believes there are more Americans who are now willing to believe Russian propaganda. And he said, and this is a quote, if you're Russia, you very much have a candidate, seeming to call out the former president and Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. Now, with this said, there has been some pushback against this. Notably, allies of former President Trump have labeled this as an attempt to revive what they've called the Russia hoax. And when they talk about that, they're talking about when many Democrats and also U.S. intelligence officials said back in 2016 and then again in 2020 that there was evidence that Russia was interfering in the elections to help former President Donald Trump win. So are they feeling particularly emboldened given the U.S. political divisions? According to U.S. intelligence officials, national security officials, law enforcement officials, Russia has always been emboldened. In some ways, they describe what Russia does as kind of looking for existing divisions and fissures within American society and then throwing out whatever they can on whatever platform, social media or other ways to see what they can do to magnify and exacerbate those divisions and then take advantage of them so that they can have a candidate win or get 
Americans to vote for candidates across the board that might be or hold views that are more beneficial to Russia. So Russia's always been emboldened. What's happened, though, and, and this isn't necessarily because of divisions within the U.S., but because of the success that Russia has had, other countries have looked at it, countries like China, countries like Iran, other countries, even Cuba, and a handful of others have seen this and they have decided to get into this game because to run influence operations, to try to sway or convince or cause divisions within the U.S. electorate, for these countries, it's cost effective. It doesn't cost a lot of money. You don't need to spend a lot of time on it. They can just throw things up against the wall and if something sticks, they win. And are they getting more creative beyond the usual social media platforms? They're not necessarily getting more creative. Uh, the, the playbook that the Russians have trotted out and which others are emulating, specifically Iran, are looking for loud voices, influential voices on the extremes of the U.S. political spectrum, both the, the conservative extreme and the liberal extremes. And then they try to amplify that to get people upset and try to lead them one way or another so that they think they're acting on their own, but they're actually acting in a way that Russia thinks is beneficial to them or Iran thinks is beneficial to them or just causes more chaos, which countries like Russia and Iran they, they think they benefit from that as well. The thing that's changed between 2016, 2020, and now for the 2024 presidential election is the prevalence and the availability of artificial intelligence. And when he was speaking to the cybersecurity conference this past week, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, said the ability to use AI to scale up these types of operations is going to make what happened in 2016, he said, look like child's play. Is it already happening? It never really stopped. There, there are ebbs and flows with the influence operations from countries like Russia and China and Iran, Cuba, even U.S. allies, we were told four years ago, were running influence operations and, and doing things to impact the U.S. election. It always is there. What happens during the, the election cycle when you have a presidential election, which is a national election, they put more effort into it. They put more money into it. They spend more time on it. So it ramps up. In some ways, it can become more visible. But in other ways, it's just the same playbook playing out again and again and again, sometimes with more effort, and sometimes because the elections are national, the debates are, are larger, there's more attention, the influence campaigns can perhaps have more impact, and that's what officials in the U.S. worry about. VOA National Security Correspondent Jeff Selden, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that's all the time we have for this week. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, thank you for listening. For more news throughout the week, visit us anytime at voanews.com. Join us next week for more Issues in the News. Until then, I'm Lori London.